0: listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity.
1: Hello and welcome to the 1,916th edition of St Edmunds News Talk for the 16th of February 2023. The editor of this edition is Claire Mellor, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are David and Carol Goodrum. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And now for the headlines. Airfield lease shock.
0: Lack of water is putting Suffolk crops at risk, experts warn.
1: Speculation has been rife over the future of Ruffham Airfield, after it emerged organisations using the site would not have their leases renewed when they expire at the end of May. But Ruffham Estate, which owns the land, said it intended to return the site to farmland, with increasing costs partly behind the decision not to renew the leases. In a letter, Ruffham Estate informed Skyward Flight Training its licence to occupy Ruffham Airfield for the purposes of taking off and landing aircraft would not be renewed after it expired on May the 31st, with the firm required to vacate and remove any aircraft or structures on the land by that date. Beyond this date, we will no longer be maintaining the airstrip for aircraft, added the letter. Chris Shepherd Rose of Skyward said the letter was unexpected, adding... The estate has said it's not cost-effective for them to continue maintaining the airfield. We pay half the grass-cutting every year. We mow all the taxiways, we collect all the landing fees on their behalf in addition to paying our rent, so I don't know what they mean. They expect me to close in four months, but I'm negotiating for a bit longer until the end of September to allow us a smooth exit. This is all a great disappointment, and I'm hoping we will find somewhere else, or they, a mistake will change their minds. I've even offered to pay more rent. Mr Shepherd Rose is searching for another suitable airfield in close proximity to transfer operations to. But this airfield is pretty special, as it is historic, he said. Think of all the men who fought in World War Two, and there were a number of crashes involved, planes, from this airfield. And then think of it being ploughed up. Maybe one day it will end up as housing. Skyward has been based at the airfield since 2013 and has grown and grown since then, according to Mr Shepard-Rose. The school now has nine instructors and three employees. I want people to understand this is for the local population to enjoy because we have people from all walks of life coming here to learn to fly, he said. We've only had eight complaints from members of the public in the time we have been here. Skywood is not the only organisation being asked to vacate the site, with Suffolk Kite Flyers and Berry Model Flying Club also understood to be affected. Suffolk Kite Flyers said it used the site regularly, with around 25 members visiting for flying kites and kite bugging. Dennis Whiting, committee member, said their lease letter had come out of the blue. "'Our main concern is where do we go now?' he said. "'There's been no reason given and no warning, and it seems bizarre.' We're so taken aback by the short notice. The club has been there for over 30 years. Dennis said the site was used every week with members mowing and maintaining their land. There's no cost to the estate. There's also nothing that has given us any indication that the lease termination would happen. I understand things change. We all do. And there's no secret. There's development all around that area. So it would be nice to know that this is going. what is going to happen to the airfield. Everyone is making an assumption they're going to sell it, but I'd be interested to know if the site is of historical importance. And from a purely selfish point of view, the club needs flat grassland in order to carry on, he said. Simon Edell, Ruffin estate manager, said the decision was driven by financial implications and the pressures of a continued development around the airfield. He emphasised the Grade 2 listed control tower was not affected. We have taken the view that because of increased costs of inserting, of insuring, running and maintaining the active airfield, it is not viable, said Mr. Adele. Our plan is that the land will revert to farmland and we will farm it like it was before, before it went back to being a runway. This does not affect the museum. As far as we are concerned, it will be there to stand forevermore. Graham Sage, Ruffham Tower Association Chairman, said it would be a shame not to have the sounds of aircraft during the summer, bringing back some of the atmosphere of past events at the site. We continue to have a very good working relationship with the estate and we are both committed to preserving this historic site for future generations, he said. The museum has had many tough times before, but we've always pulled through. Land around the airfield was identified for potential mixed use, employment and houses. In West Suffolk Council's local plan for development, up to 2040.
0: Water in the east of England is getting scarcer. And the problem will become acute without action, a conference in Ipswich has heard. Left unresolved, lack of water could result in farmers in East Anglia, which is the UK's driest region, being unable to grow vital crops, delegates were told. Farmers, politicians and water experts from across Europe gathered at the hold on the 3rd of February to hear how the agricultural industry was trying to overcome acute water challenges. With large quantities of fresh rainwater discharged into the sea projects such as the Felixstowe Hydrocycle Scheme are showing how the challenges are already being overcome. The Hydrocycle Scheme involves diverting water being pumped out to sea to provide farmers with the irrigation they need By this year, it will feed 11 different reservoirs for farmers. It is one of six schemes to have been supported by a European Union project which has been looking at solutions to water shortage issues. Daniel Johns, Water Resources' East Managing Director, described the dire water situation in the east of England at the Interreg 2C's closing conference and said urgent action was needed we are already water-stressed. The Environment Agency has already classified the whole of the east of England as severely water-stressed and that's coming through in the state of our natural environment. 92% of the rivers in the east of England are below good ecological status. By 2050, A deficit of 640 million litres of water a day is projected, he said. Unless action is taken, water scarcity will constrain agricultural production, curtail economic and housing development, endanger the East's Chalk Rivers, peatlands and wetlands, Water Resources East said.
1: Bearing in mind the news from our first headline, Um, Here's a little bit of history about Ruffham Airfield. (coughs) Ruffham Airfield was formerly RAF Bury St Edmunds. The airfield was built in 1941 and 1942 with three concrete runways and was used extensively during World War II. (coughs) It was designed for a USAF bomb group with 50 hard stands, two hangars and accommodation for 3,000 personnel. The airfield was opened in September 1942 with groups using it during the war, including 47th Bombardment Group, 322nd Bombardment Group, and 94th Bombardment Group. The site was returned to the RAF in December 1945. After the war, most of the site returned to agriculture. The old technical site was developed into Ruffham Industrial Estate. Some of the original hangars are still in use for storage. The restored control tower is a museum.
0: A proposal to pause plans for rural zero-carbon buses will be put to councillors by officers at next week's Mid-Suffolk District Council Cabinet meeting. The Green and Liberal Democrat group suggested setting aside £820,000 of funding for two years for the scheme last February and this was agreed by the Council. The latest recommendation is to wait for more evidence from similar schemes in other areas and consider using the first electric electric buses for workers at Stowmarket's Gateway 14 business park. Councillor Mellon, Mid-Suffolk Green and Liberal Democrat group leader, said the proposal to pause the introduction of the two electric buses is disappointing. <coughs> Given the long delivery times for these type of vehicles, last year we proposed that two be ordered and we sort out the details of how they are used in the meantime. However, no order has been placed, and it could be another year before any new provision arrives. The potential link to Gateway 14 is puzzling, since construction there is only just starting. Yet, people out in the villages are crying out for a decent bus service now. The reluctance of the Conservative administration to spend money that has been already agreed perhaps shows why they are putting another £3 million into reserves this year whilst not delivering what residents need. Research into electric bus schemes elsewhere found that many were at the pilot stage and so provided no solid evidence of success. Officers suggest looking into starting the scheme for people who work at Gateway 14 and live in the rural villages around Stowmarket. The idea is that the creation of many jobs at Gateway 14 would produce a clear target audience when promoting the service, increasing its likelihood of success. The first company to secure a plot at Gateway 14 is The Range. It began work on a distribution centre this year and is expected to provide 1,650 jobs. Gateway 14 is part of Freeport East, a set of low tax, low low regulation zones given the green light in December 2021. Officers are also wary about starting the rollout of electric buses while there's uncertainty around the future Of some bus services.
1: Health bosses have been worried that West Suffolk's hospitals faced a worrying financial deficit going into 2023. Details of the debt burden emerged during a regular board meeting of West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust, which runs West Suffolk Hospital and Newmarket Community Hospital. Nick Macdonald, Executive Director of Resources, told his colleagues that for the 2022-23 financial year, the Trust was reporting a £15 million underlying deficit. Mr Macdonald said that in recent years, the Trust had buoyed its finances by spending cash reserves built up during the pandemic. However, these savings had now largely been exhausted and it was expected that the deficit could balloon to around £17 million over the next year. Mr Macdonald said much of the rise was due to inflationary pressures, as well as shortfalls and expected returns from cost-improvement programmes, which are called CIPs. CIPs are schemes run by the Trust in order to make savings without impacting on day-to-day hospital services. Mr Macdonald said we were well-funded for covid We hadn't been spending it all until this year, when our COVID fund fell significantly, as we had to use that fund to balance our position. We can still report that we will still break even this year, but that does mean we've used up the reserves we've built up during COVID. What that will mean, though, is that there's none of those reserves left in the future. More worryingly, that means we've got a recurring deficit going into next year. Mr Macdonald stressed that the Trust's financial situation was not unique relative to its partners in the Suffolk and North East Essex ICS. He said a £15 million underlying deficit is not out of kilter with other organisations at the moment. We're not alone there by any stretch of the imagination. We are broadly in line with our partners within the ICS. To limit further deficit growth, the Trust is planning to implement further saving programmes, including a £10 million CIP.
0: A West Suffolk councillor has praised the work of the Rural Coffee Caravan, which has been combating loneliness in the countryside for 20 years. Councillor Sarah Pugh, who represents the Webster and Wickenbrook Ward, made the remarks as she welcomed the van to Stansfield. The unique mobile community CAF lays on a number of activities for rural residents. It has recently received £5,000 in council funding to support its work. I know many of the, re- of the Stansfield residents are looking forward to the coffee caravan's return and I will be making sure the other villages in my area are engaging with the important work of this wonderful charity.
1: Controversial plans to build almost 80 new homes in Bury St Edmunds have been withdrawn by the applicant. The plans submitted by Countryside Properties would have seen 76 homes built on land south of Sandlands Drive, Marham Park. These were met with concerns from Bury St Edmunds Town Council, which felt there was insufficient information and lack of justification regarding flooding and overdevelopment in the area. The Town Council also highlighted concerns around a lack of leisure provision as part of the application. Suffolk County Council, as lead local flood authority, recommended a, an objection to plans due to issues with drainage. More than 100 residents also submitted comments to West Suffolk Council, were voting voicing their concerns. They cited worries with local schools and leisure facilities, concerns with traffic and issues with parking, amongst others. Countryside Properties submitted an environmental impact assessment screening request to West Suffolk Council for the two hectare plot in the summer of 2021. On Friday, January 20th, the decision was made to withdraw the planning application.
0: Plans to open a Primark in Berris are moving a step closer as work continues. The fast fashion retailer. Will move into the ground and first floors of the former Debenhams at the Ark Shopping Centre and is expected to open before the end of the year. Hoarding was installed outside on Wednesday as work will soon begin on the new entrance doors for the Primark store. The new shop will create about 90 jobs with an opening date yet to be confirmed.
1: Police in Bury St Edmunds have taken action following reports of two incidents of planes being targeted by a laser pen. The incidents involved aircraft from Skyward Flight Training at Ruffham Airfield on Saturday. A police spokesman said they attended a property and a laser pen was handed over and seized.
0: West Suffolk Council's Cabinet has approved plans for a potential 10 pence a week council tax increase to residents. The budget plans would see band D property owners pay the extra alongside investment in reducing carbon emissions and keeping swimming pools open. The budget proposals now need full council approval at its meeting on the 21st of February if they are to be implemented from April. Councillor Sarah Broughton, deputy leader and portfo- portfolio holder for resources and property for the council said, I really believe this is a budget we can be proud of which is no mean feat in these times. It provides the fuel for our continued ambitions to make sure West Suffolk communities, businesses and environment continue to be healthy. This budget shows the Council is in tune with its communities and businesses and understands how the cost of living crisis is biting. District authorities can raise council tax by 2.99% next financial year but West Suffolk Council will will stick to previous plans. This will see council tax for band D properties increase by around 2.6%. The maximum reduction to council tax through the local council tax reduction scheme will also rise to 100% in April. The budget proposals include £9 million for initiatives to help reach net zero by 2030, £240,000 a year for waste and ground maintenance teams, £440,000 for car park improvements as well as funding towards replacing Bury St Edmunds Leisure Centre, £300,000 to ensure pools stay open despite high utility and energy costs, and £513,000 for funding local community groups.
1: More than 300 homes have been given the final sign-off as part of a new garden village plan just outside Newmarket. The controversial development at Kennet, which has been opposed by many residents who argued it would quadruple the traffic on already inadequate roads and ruin the character of the village and surrounding countryside, was described as wonderful by one member of East Cambridgeshire District Council, whose East Cam's trading company is behind the development, while others felt it was a missed opportunity to encourage less car use. Outline approval was granted by the Council back in 2019 for up to 500 homes, as well as a new primary school, nursery and care home, and plans for a bypass around the edge of the new development were also approved in December last year. On Wednesday, members of the Council's Planning Committee approved detailed plans for the first 328 homes, a mix of houses and flats, ranging from one to four bedrooms. 98 classed as affordable homes. Councillor David Ambrose Smith said it was a wonderful scheme, but Councillor John Trapp said if it was an aim of the development to encourage more active travel... Then it should have included more infrastructure to support things such as cycling. Councillor Charlotte Kane said she thought it was a missed opportunity. We are building a new garden village. There are lots of good things in it to encourage active travel, but it is cut off at the knees. Giving priority to vehicles may mean parents discourage children from cycling too far, especially involves going across a road.
0: And now we're going on to some letters, and this one is from Peter Cresswell, which is entitled, Time for a Review of Local Government. I warmly applaud Councillor James Lay for highlighting the extent to which Newmarket has become Suffolk's forgotten town. When I was actively involved in public life, I always cautioned that if Forest Heath District Council were to join forces with St Edmundsbury to form West Suffolk Council, it would become a takeover rather than a merger. It has proved to be a very one-sided marriage. I advocate that a major review of local government is long overdue. The last one was almost 50 years ago in 1974. I am a strong believer in localism. Key decisions affecting local communities should be made at a local level. Newmarket has been underfunded by by Suffolk for years, as Councillor Lay, Lay has stated. In the past, I have raised the possibility of Newmarket transferring to Cambridgeshire. You only have to look at the, at the geography of the area to see how logical it would be. The current situation has only added weight to that argument. With the government devolving considerable money to the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough combined authority, It is logical that Newmarket could only benefit by a change in the county border. By remaining in Suffolk, Newmarket will continue to be disadvantaged.
1: And this letter is from Dr Stephen Taylor from Fordham. He says, regarding the drone's eye view of the hatchfield development, I was disappointed to see, driving past last week, that trees and shrubs have been cut down against the Fordham Road for no apparent purpose other than revealing the site to passers-by. I was surprised to hear about the development when it was approved because I had thought that further development was restricted by the capacity of the new market sewage treatment works. We are in the process of having 400 homes built here in Fordham and when applications were first made, I calculated on a spreadsheet that our sewage would be overloaded At times of heavy rainfall, still a significant amount of surface water finds its way into the sewers, as evidenced by us all paying for it in our bills from Anglian Water. Our sewage is pumped to Soames Treatment Plant, which also must be at capacity, with the great number of houses being built there. One plan by Anglian Water to mitigate this possibility was to pump some into Newmarket. Once Hatchfield is built... I suspect that we shall see sewage overflows polluting the rivers through our village. A further point of concern is the amount of water that is being drawn from the chalk aquifers. The River Kennet would be a wonderful chalk stream were it not for the water abstracted to supply the new market area, including us in Fordham, for irrigation of potato crops through the summer and for the water pumped from Kennet to keep the water supplies in Essex maintained. The river is now quite dry for the greater part of the year. The trickle at Moulton comes, comes from their sewage treatment plant. Developers can build more and more housing, but they can't make it rain anymore.
0: And this letter uh, is entitled, Heard Enough About Brexit? It comes from V Sharp of Ipswich. Am I alone in having to suffer the weekly diatribe from anti-diatribe from anti-Brexiteers, it has become a regular feature now that some readers have little else to occupy themselves with.
1: That's a very short letter. And this is from John Popham of Bury St Edmunds. It was concerning to see the double-page advertisement in last week's Berry Free Press for the solution to nuclear waste by the provision of a geological disposal facility. Whatever one may think of nuclear power, its waste disposal is a serious problem in urgent urgent need of resolution. At Sellafield, as the company currently states, it still has to decide how it will tackle some of its most hazardous clean-up challenges. It too does not have a record that inspires confidence. In 1996, Nirex lost its case at inquiry to establish a low and intermediate waste rock repository, after it failed to disclose details of all the boreholes that it had drilled in the area. When the full evidence was produced by a witness for Friends of the Earth, it was clear that the site was unacceptable. It was the first time that the nuclear industry had been defeated at public inquiry. The cost to the nation approached £500 million pounds that NYREX had spent on what proved to be wasted work. So what about the present position in the UK, How best does the nation find a satisfactory GDF by inviting, as Nuclear Waste Services does, in its advertisement, residents of this area to come forward with offers of sites? How can they possibly know whether a site may be appropriate? Does it follow from this that GDF will only investigate locations where it considers a local community may, if offered sufficient incentive, accept a site in their locality? Can this really be the correct way to proceed? One assumes that GDF will have done some preliminary work before selecting areas in which to advertise. But is this not allowing a cash cart to influence the selection of the best site for the contaminated nuclear horse? Surely the most appropriate site from a safety standpoint should be selected on a geological basis. Following this support could be following this support could be given to the adjoining community. If there proves to be one, as France has done, for decades for settlements that have nuclear power stations adjacent to them. After more than 60 years of nuclear power, and with the possibility of at least one further nuclear station in the offing, it is essential to find the best solution to this national problem, given that the waste remains active for several thousand years. Successive governments have failed to tackle this issue. This time there will need to be a clear demonstration that the selected site is fully fit its proposed use.
0: And this letter is from Janet Douglas of Framlingham and it's headed idea for photo identification. It has been suggested I renew my passport when it expires. I have no intention of travelling abroad again but I have no driving licence and it may be needed to provide photo proof. That seems an expensive way to provide a legal photo Has anyone got another idea?
1: And a letter from Rosamond Griffin of Pakenham. She says, I would like to extend my thanks to some very kind and thoughtful people I came across when I was riding my little grey horse through Ixworth Street on my way to Pakenham last Tuesday. We came across a lane stoppage with traffic lights and proceeded when they turned to green. As we neared the bend in the road before the bridge over the river, we encountered the work in progress. IWJS was doing some drainage with a rather big vehicle making a lot of noise and with large and with large hoses. My horse was very frightened of this and in the middle of the road refused to proceed and was anxious to run off in the opposite direction. I managed to hang on and stop her and the very kind IWJS gentleman offered to turn off the hose and reel them in thus lessening the effects. Unfortunately, this wasn't quite enough to calm my horse, so I dismounted and managed to lead her through. All the people who were inconvenienced by this incident were very patient and appreciative of how how a situation like this can happen and took it in good heart. A very kind gentleman, waiting in his car, even offered to give me a leg up onto the horse. However, I thought this might be too dangerous for him, as the horse was still a bit wound up and I did manage to remount on the other side of the bridge. Proceeding to cross the A143, we were approached by an Apache helicopter, so our ride back had plenty of surprises, and we did get home safely. However, it makes me happy to think how kind and helpful these people were, and lucky to have met them. Thank you to all again.
0: And this um, is from uh, social media called chatterbox and it concerns um, a video of uh, sheep escaping from Coney Weston field in Saperston onto Bardwell Road. Residents were joining forces to herd them back um, and it uh, produced a bit of comedy from our readers. Paul Sparks who lives in the village noticed the large herd had got free from their field off Coney Weston Road when his partner Sammy was leaving for work at around 7.30am. More than 50 sheep were on the loose, but with the assistance from residents as well as people from the nearby Euston estate, the group rallied around to coax them back into their pen. On seeing the article, Sarah Pizzi said, Brilliant! Hope they got back safely. (laughs) Beverly Johnson chipped in with, Bet there were ramifications. (laughs) <laughs> with Jeff Howey finishing the set with, no doubt people will be flocking to see them.
1: <laughs> A note from our editor says, Dear readers, I thought this article was interesting despite being in the Watson section of Berry, of the Very Free Press. And it's entitled, Writing from Behind Bars. A rehearsed reading of Barry St Edmund's playwright, Danusia Wazoko, latest play, penned up, is coming to the Theatre Royal. Denousia's previous plays there include Labour of Love, charting the group who helped save or restore the theatre in the 1960s, the Wisdom Club celebrating longevity based on the workshops with Help the Aged, and Tough Love evolved from workshops with the town's Women's Refuge. Here, Caroline Fitton explains the inspiration behind her latest play. Not surprisingly, stepping into a prison for the first time was a daunting experience for Bury St Edmund's playwright, Danussi Wazarko. Delivering her 1st scriptwriting course at Holesley Bay, open prison 15 years ago, was her first step on a journey of discovery, that of the healing, redemptive power of storytelling. Arranged via a scheme with Synergy Theatre Project, that course was the first of many now delivered at an array of male prisons, including Whitemore, Norwich... High Point and Belmarsh. The statistics of being an inmate tell stark truths. 51% of people entering prison have the literacy skills of an 11 year old, while 36% have a physical or mental disability. But human stories lie behind these stats. Many have low levels of education, low self worth and self esteem, and little faith in their ability to do anything well. But the courses have seen inmates flourish and thrive by telling their story and gaining the confidence and empowerment to develop a voice. Now drawing on this rich seam of experience, Danusia has developed Penned Up, which is a drama based on a female prison teacher working with six inmates, to be performed initially as a rehearsed reading at Theatre Royal on Monday, February the 20th. She feels very strongly about sharing the journey of prisoners, a journey of confidence, seeing their self-esteem grow, and with the hope of leading to less re-offending, and aims, in the drama, to reflect their humanity beyond their crimes. It's very important to challenge perceptions. I want the audience to care about the characters, with less focus on the crime, she explained. Since feeling daunted at the outset, her stance quickly changed. From a frightened perception, my journey has gone from fear to understanding, Sharing the journey of prisoners is a privilege. It's all about bringing confidence and seeing their self-esteem grow. Courses like this can give the tools for change and lead to less reoffending. The first half of the play was performed also as a reading at Menagerie Theatre in Cambridge last year and was well received, with artistic director Paul Bourne saying, The play has an unusual perspective on the rarely explored subject of male incarceration. Powerful to witness. It's an excellent script, funny and touching, dramatic and dynamic at its core. Feedback from one of the course attendees tells its own story. When I first met her, I thought she was nuts, and then I realized that she was the best kind of nuts, passionate about what she's doing. Penned up is a strong story asking questions of the prison system and looking at how offenders are treated. What would be the answer to the question she poses? How would you like to be treated in prison?
0: Uh, The owner of an eco-shop in Bury St. Edmunds is celebrating four years of trading and says she wouldn't choose anything else. Catherine Wynne of Ixworth began Clear to See in 2019, having always had a passion for the environment and previously working for charities such as the National Trust and the RSPB. She was inspired by other shops with the concept of reducing plastic waste caused by grocery shopping. Now, four years later, Catherine is still behind the counter at the shop in St John's Street and is proud of her achievement, though it wasn't without its challenges. She said, It's very exciting because, what with Covid and everything else, I was a bit sceptical the business would survive. But I remained open during the pandemic so that people could buy their food as they needed it. They kept me going through that really difficult period, so to reach four years with a pandemic and now an economic crisis, I'm proud I'm still standing. I enjoy every minute. I haven't ever come to work and thought, I wish I wasn't going today. I wouldn't choose anything else. I love my shop. The shop sells a range of food items, such as loose flour, pasta, pulses, cereals and nuts, as well as cleaning product refills, hand soap and washable sanitary products. Catherine hopes going forward that more people will visit her shop to support local business and change their shopping habits to help the environment. My plans for the future are to encourage more people to shop with me, she said. People have this concept that zero waste shops are more expensive. There's swings and roundabouts, some products are and some products aren't, but at least you're saving on all the plastic waste that goes into landfill and reducing food waste because you're only buying what you need.
1: This feature is written by local historian, author and tour guide, Martin Taylor, and he's been trawling through his archive to find some of his favourite Berries St. Edmunds pictures and stories from the past. There was a plaque put up in 1907 on Bury St Edmund's Cupola House, which recorded the visit to the town by celebrated novelist Daniel Defoe, author of Robinson Crusoe. The plaque was one of twelve stone plaques, eleven oval and one rectangular, put up in the town to help celebrate the wonderful pageant of that year, reinforcing the town's history and heritage. After the disastrous fire of June 2012, the Strada restaurant, then occupying the cupola, was, to all intents and purposes, gutted, and the plaque, now painted blue with gold re- lettering, was not put back up, languishing somewhere inside. Capola House, now home to Sakura, a Japanese sushi restaurant, has had its prestige, Grade 1 listing, reduced to Grade 2, as it is not the building it once was. Cupola House was built in 1693 by a wealthy apothecary, Thomas Macroe and his wife Susan. The weathervane up high recorded this. However, there is no evidence to support Defoe's visit, to see them. On the contrary, Defoe was a dissenter, while the Macroes were not. A confusion with names seems to have led to this ambiguity when Defoe visited Berry soon after his release from Newgate Prison in 1704. He had published a satirical pamphlet, The Shortest Way with Dissenters, which was a backswipe at reactionaries who advocated tougher measures against the dissenters, in particular by refusing to allow them to take public office. These people were known as high-flyers due to their unbending and rigid approach to dissenters. But the tract was accepted by some as being true. The dissenters, such as Presbyterians, were horrified to think that a wave of hatred could break out followed by violence. Defoe went into hiding after Parliament issued a libel, a libel writ against him, but eventually he had to face the music and, after a short spell in the pillory, he was incarcerated in Newgate for a year. He published his first newspaper in prison and you could say the notoriety gained from the pamphlet made him. Perhaps Macro could be confused with Defoe, but it could seem that Defoe's visit to Berry was more to do with seeing a T or J Morley, was a grocer in the Cook Row, now Abigate Street, and a Presbyterian, hence the letters T or J.M. in Defoe's narratives. Regarding that oval plaque, erroneous as it is, should it be put back on the building? As Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet, therein lies the rub.
0: He first came to the nation's attention as the always kind and compassionate doctor on TV's GPs Behind Closed Doors and since has become something of a national treasure. Dr. Amir Khan, GP and best-selling author working in inner-city Bradford, is now a regular on ITV's Lorraine and Good Morning Britain, and has appeared in numerous other TV shows. And now he's announced his first-ever live dates, one of which will be at the Apex in Berist and Edmunds on Tuesday, May the 23rd. I can't wait to see you all on my first UK tour, said Dr Khan. Putting this show together has been so much fun. There's a lot of laughs, some passionate support for our beloved NHS, and you get to put your medical questions to me. But please don't tell Mama Khan about it. But Dr Amar Khan, doctor in the house, comes to the town on Tuesday, May 23rd, and promises a fascinating, heartwarming, and frequently hilarious evening where he will share stories about growing up in his British Asian family with six sisters ruled by Mama Khan. He will also talk about his life as a general practitioner with stories of patient encounters from the heartwarming to the bizarre, painting a revealing portrait of health care in 21st century Britain. Dr. Khan will also argue why the NHS needs to be saved (coughs) (coughs) after suffering years of underfunding and lack of staff which have brought it to crisis point. He will also detail his personal journey to becoming a doctor, something he never wanted to do, preferring to become a vet, but influenced by his mother, Amma applied to study medicine and the rest, as they say, is history. Finally, Dr Amar will bring the doctor's surgery to the audience, taking questions and tackling seemingly personal and often challenging subjects in a relaxed and practical manner, offering advice from sleeping issues and headaches to joint pain and heart palpitations. When he's not in the surgery or on TV screens, Dr Khan enjoys gardening, baking, running and supporting wildlife conservation. He is president of the RSPB, has contributed to BBC's Winter Watch, Gardener's World, BBC Wildlife magazine, Grazia and Good Housekeeping. And if all that isn't enough, he's also vice president of the National Wildlife Trusts and the Butterfly Conservation Society. Working closely with them to ensure access to green spaces for inner city children and spreading the word on how being outside with nature is good for your health. Few.
1: Lucy Fraser has become the second Newmarket MP to be appointed Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport. The member for South East Cambridgeshire got the job in Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's mini-cabinet reshuffle on Tuesday and becomes the 11th Culture Secretary in the space of 10 years. Matt Hancock, MP for West Suffolk, also held in post in 2018, before he became Health Secretary. Unlike her predecessors, Michelle Donnellan, a former Sky and WWE marketing executive who has moved to the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology, and Nadine Dorries, a former actor, (coughs) Mrs Fraser does not appear to have any experience in media or top-level sport, although part of her constituency is the world capital of horse racing. Prior to becoming an MP, she practised as a barrister and was appointed as Queen's Counsel in 2013. Two years later, she was elected to one of the safest Conservative seats in the country when she took over the South East Cambridgeshire constituency from Jim Pace. Mrs Fraser, who worked with Mr Sunak when he was Chancellor and she was the Financial Secretary to the Treasury, has also previously been in Government in Justice as Solicitor General and in the Education Department. She said she was delighted to be in her new role.
0: Firefighters were praised for saving uh, a historic pub from being engulfed by a blaze. They battled the fire on the first floor of the Star pub in Lydgate. Six fire crews attended after being alerted by a member of the public who heard the fire alarm going off and could see smoke billowing from the roof. The blaze was extinguished and an investigation into the cause was underway, but it looked to be accidental. Station manager Alan Coldwell praised the swift action of the initial crews who quickly brought the fire under control, which, he said, prevented what could have been a significant fire due to the age and construction of the property. I would like to stress the importance of fitted smoke alarms to give the early warning of a fire which helped to save the building in this case, he said. The pub is Grade 2 listed and has been in use for at least 160 years. A Facebook post from the pub thanked well-wishers and said everyone was safe and well.
1: More than 100,000 people have signed a National Farmers Union petition calling on the government to ban Sky Lanterns across England and Wales. The NFU believes sky lanterns are highly dangerous and damaging to farmland, causing wildfires and harming livestock and wildlife. The petition will be sent to the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA, which has commissioned research to investigate the effects of sky lanterns on the countryside. NFU Deputy President Tom Bradshaw, who farms near Colchester, said, over 200,000 sky lanterns are released every year in the UK and we have heard countless examples of the harm to animals and wildlife. They cause unnecessary litter across our beautiful countryside and cause fires, putting an unnecessary strain on public safety services, such as local fire and rescue services. The British public care deeply about this issue, as evidenced by more than 100,000 people who have signed and shared our petition.
0: Four people have been arrested in Bury St Edmunds in connection with drug offences. On Monday, police searched a property in Chalk Road South. A spokesperson for Suffolk Police said an amount of suspected drugs were found during their search, while a mobile phone was also seized. Three men and a woman were arrested on suspicion of being concerned in the supply of controlled drugs. They have been released on bail to return to police on the twelfth of May,
1: and another piece of fire news log burner owners can breathe a sigh of relief as it became clear that new rules tightening emission regulations are not set to apply to Suffolk households. The government has announced a new twenty five year environment plan which included provisions to restrict the amount of smoke emitted by new stoves from five grams per hour to three. However, the rules only apply in smoke control areas and currently there are none of these in zones in Suffolk. Under the new regulations, anyone found breaking the rules could be issued with an on-the-spot fine and even receive a criminal record. The Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA, has started cracking down on the use of log burners and coal fires which are considered to be major emitters of fine particulate matter. These small particles of air pollution are understood to find their way into the body's lungs and blood. In total, emissions from open fires and stoves make up around twenty-five percent of the UK's emissions of PM two point five, and around one point five uh, homes across. I think this is one point five million homes across the UK, all use wood f- wood for fuel.
0: <clears throat> A pair of rescued owls have flown off down the woodland wedding aisle into the sunset. Tawny owls, Watsit and Snowball, recently came to the Suffolk Owl Sanctuary as two individual cases, but flew away as a couple. The owls were found at the roadside in different locations in Suffolk and had both been injured after being hit by a car. After all major injuries, such as broken Um, bones were ruled out, they were brought to the sanctuary in Stonamaspal for further treatment. This is where the owls bonded, snuggling up together. As their well-being started to improve, the staff at the sanctuary gave them nicknames based on their quite unique colouring. Tawny owls generally are quite varied in colour and can range from very pale to almost a mottled black in some areas and it gives them fantastic camouflage in a variety of woodland habitats. These two owls in particular shared some quite extreme variations of pattern as Snowball is an incredibly pale in places almost white and Watsit is a very red owl. The couple is not even a year old which means they are only teenagers in owl years. Although unsure of the owl's sex it is believed that Snowball is a male while his sweetheart Watsit is a female. Jess Barrell, senior falconer and head of the Sanctuary's hospital, said, Within days, we found them snuggling together in their nest box, which is, a, which is a good sign they can tolerate each other. Both were showing great progress and recovery, so we decided they are ready to start their new lives together. On the day of the release, Watsit and Snowball had an outdoor wedding ceremony when they flew down the aisle together to start their new life. In the coming weeks, the sanctuary staff will be monitoring the nesting site and hope to see the couple again.
1: That's a lovely story. Council tax for county council services and social care will increase by just under 4%. Suffolk County Council supported the budget yesterday after voting against amendments by the opposition for an additional increase to fund lower speed limits Lower speed limits and community transport. The agreed 3.99% increase to council tax will see a Band D homeowner paying £57.51 more a year. Councillor Richard Rout, inset, uh, this a picture of him, Cabinet Member of, for Finance and the Environment, said, "We never forget that the money we spend is not our own. It is levied from the people of this county, and we do not spend it lightly." This administration never thinks the only answer is increasing taxes by the maximum we can. Through sound financial management, a strong track record of healthy reserves and continuous service improvements and innovation, we could strike a fine balance in this budget. The Green, Liberal, Democrat and Independent group of councillors suggested adding an additional 0.89% to council tax the equivalent of 25p a week for band D property owners. This would be put towards increasing funding for libraries, hiring an officer dedicated to net zero carbon, investing in and electrifying minibuses for public use, and piloting the reduction of speed limits to 20 miles per hour in residential areas. It would have also helped to create a local scheme of benefits and passes for cultural events and activities for paid and unpaid carers. Councillor Andrew Stringer, leader of the GLI Group, said, We have focused on areas that Suffolk residents feel are most urgent and critical to the challenges we face. Suffolk has a declared gap between our emissions and targets. It is crucial that our net zero carbon emissions are given the best chance of success through a carbon budget officer. Many are put off walking, cycling or horse riding because of inappropriate speeds. Seeking to amend speed limits on a case-by-case basis is incredibly expensive and long-winded. Fuel costs have hit our libraries hard. Investing £300,000 in libraries will return £1.8 million in social value, a true invest-to-save business business model. In my area alone, there are villages with double the housing on the horizon but that have experienced a five-fold decrease in public transport if they have any public transport at all.
0: And uh, we end uh, with a feature about the Stowe Market factory that caused outrage with its working conditions. If you've been keeping up with the news you'll have seen all about the strike action that's taking place up and down the country. Train drivers, nurses, teachers and more are all taking to the picket line to improve working conditions and pay across a variety of sectors a staunch leftist through and through i was keen to find out more about suffolk's history of striking over the years so i made my way to the hold to do some research and pore through the county's archives and this is when i came across the stone market strikes which took place in the summer of 1913 this period of industrial action occurred when the workers at the stone market explosives company Took to the streets in order to fight for fairer wages. Harry Double, writing in the East Anglian on the, on the 2nd of January 1985, said When the year 1913 dawned, no one in the town realized it was to be a year which would see itself embroiled in one of the longest ever industrial disputes experienced in East Anglia. This comparatively sleepy and peaceful backwater with its population of 4,000, was to experience dramatic events which were destined to reach the House of Commons. He goes on to write that the Stone Market Explosives Company was notorious for its low wage scale, and discontent within its workforce had been festering for some months, with various factions from within its midst accusing the firm of paying breadline wages for some considerable time. The catalyst for striking came when it was discovered that while the basic rate for unskilled workers had been officially raised from threepence apiece to fourpence per hour, the company was not paying it, it was a straw that broke the camel's back, and the men had down tools. On Wednesday, the 28th of January 1913, according to records, a carpenter returning to work after breakfast was stopped by one of his colleagues who said, "Tain't no use going to work this morning, Shaver." The strike's on, and the boys won't let you in. To which he replied, We'll see about that. Shaver rolled up his sleeves, spat on his hands, and added, I'd like to see who the devil's going to stop me. Five hundred workers normally present at the factory refused to return, forming picket lines outside the factory. Throughout the day they accosted those who left and entered. Tensions ran so high that the remaining hundred workers were forced to stop and that these boys meant business. They had formed a strike committee, opened committee rooms in town, and an official strike leaflet was issued which read, Down with sweaters. The leaflet also pointed out that while the minimum wage paid to stone market workers was 15 shillings and 11 pence, workers elsewhere were being paid 23 shillings, even up to 26 shillings in some instances. The standard of living of the working classes in rural Stowmarket prior to World War I was low indeed and there was little chance of saving up for a rainy day. Consequently, the effects of the strike started to bite quickly. Thankfully, the people of Stowmarket were on the striker's side. The landlady of a local hotel offered to supply daily soup for 16 of the neediest families. A grocery gave them 100 tickets for free tea and one Stone Market resident sent a large quantity of jam to the committee rooms. The Cooperative Society donated a lump sum of £20 to the strikers and a further £5 a week for the duration of the strike. Collection boxes were placed in local pubs and street collections were organised, with additional appeals made at flower shows and fêtes. and the town's debating society even held a concert and raised £7 for the strikers. Over in the nearby village of Coombs, eight collectors organised weekly whip rounds for the men, and a novelist who was involved in the suffragettes movement gave £5. In addition, a number of local MPs chipped in, (coughs) raising £60 in total. Liberal MP for Stone Market, Frank um, Goldsmith, took an interest in the strikes, and met with the workers, promising he would mediate for them in London. Goldsmith regularly met with Duff Grant, the company's general manager at the city office. However, he was told the men's request would only be met on their unconditional return to work. The strikers, of course, refused, and stood their ground until their demands were met. They continued to meet every week on the Duke's Head Meadow, in Ipswich Street, and marched through town with bands and union banners. In the following week, there was correspondence in the local press, and in this, Duff Grant asserted that the figure of 15 shillings and 11 pence quoted by the union was the lowest in the scale of wages, and that the average weekly wage paid by the firm had been considerably more. He accepted the fact that there had been a general advance in the standard of local wage, and that it was now approximately fourpence an hour. He also stated that the company had no intention of paying less, but he wanted that that, that come the end of the strike, there would not be the same number available. Contracts were lost, and essentially only 350 of the 500 workers would be required going forwards. The strikers were also told if they didn't return to work, the company would shut down completely. This news soon spread and many of the workers who were living near or below the bread line went back to work. It didn't take long for the local union rep to get wind of this however and a picket line of strikers gathered at the factory. Tensions rose as they blocked the road preventing workers going into the factory despite the efforts of police intervention. As workers intent on not striking Carried on working, they managed to find their way back into the factory and resorted to staying there while suppliers were smuggled into them. But the strikers did anything they could to thwart their efforts to continue working and even intercepted one of the food supply carts. On Tuesday, July the 29th, the explosive company suddenly issued a revised schedule of wages. Crowds of strikers soon met at the committee rooms where they eventually found out that the new terms wouldn't apply to everyone, with some workers seeing no pay increase at all. In the case of boys, payment was to be reduced by a halfpenny an hour. At a further meeting called by Alderman Wade, it was agreed that all those belonging to the departments in which an advance of, of wages had been notified should seek to return to work next day and that those who were unlikely to get any advance should remain out. The following morning, the workers took to the streets of Stowmarket at dawn and made their way towards the factory gates. But, sadly, in the course of the next week, the original payroll of 500, only 170 men were given jobs. This slow intake was typical of the weeks that followed. It was a hollow victory indeed. Agreed increases were not paid until two or three weeks had elapsed, after the return of each individual worker, and many of the company's original workforce were not reinstated. The, privates, the privations and hardships sustained by countless stone market families left their scars for months afterwards. The town had experienced 70 days of strife and bitterness, and a period of deprivation which to be, was to be long remembered.
1: My goodness. <clears throat> we are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmunds News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty, pl- difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We'd like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Bury Free Press, East Anglin Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken the telephone number mentioned in this edition was the theatre royal Bear St edmonds that number is 01284 769505 news talk will be back again next week so until then from claire harvey david and carol it's goodbye goodbye, goodbye.
0: You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edinbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.steddensburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Beresford St. Edmunds studio.